the question I want to ask this morning, the question that I think is on the minds of many, many people uh, still in our time, is, is there really a God, a supreme being, like we read about in this story from the book of Exodus? Is this the reality of life as it truly is? Is there somebody who moves uh, in and through and even beyond the material world that we can encounter with our senses? Is there a being who somehow in some mysterious way meets human beings, calls them into relationship with him and to a greater mission or purpose in life than they might find simply on their own? If there truly was such a being in this world, active in this world, then who of us would not, if we encountered him in the spectacular way that Moses appears to in this story from Exodus, who of us would not also respond, I too must turn aside and look at this great sight? Who of us wouldn't respond like Moses did? The truth, however, is that not every one of us has had such a burning bush experience, have we? Maybe we've encountered a few starry skies, maybe a few crazy coincidences. We wondered if there was not something larger than ourselves at work in these things, but it's not even close enough to seal the deal for us, to give us the absolute certainty some of us are seeking to know there really is a God. So why should I believe? Why should you believe there is a being like this. Men and women have wrestled with that question since the very beginning of history. In every land, in every religion, more than a few have suggested that like Moses, there are certain blazing phenomena in a sense which when studied closely do seem to support a belief in this supreme being. Some physicists and astronomers, for example, have pointed out that because everything from the very tiniest subatomic particles to the greatest swirling galaxies are so obviously in motion, then there must be a prime mover that set these things in motion. If you came home from vacation and or from a work day and you walked into your house and you suddenly saw that uh, the curtains were swinging, Right? Something was going on. You would know someone had been there. Something had put these things into motion. Things that are at rest don't suddenly seem to start moving on their own. Someone set this universe of ours on its path. Some other persons, philosophers, uh, people like Aristotle and Plato among them have suggested that if you trace every single occurrence back through the chain of cause and effect, then you ultimately come to the place when you must accept, at least logically speaking, a mind-boggling proposition, and that is that there was, at the root of things, a first cause that was uncaused. There must be some original cause to all of the effects of life. 
People rarely, of course, think back that far. We struggle to think back over what we did or what happened yesterday. But I heard a fanciful story some time ago about a group of scientists who, after many years of, of efforts, had succeeded in duplicating various species of animals and finally succeeded in cloning a human being. And extremely proud of themselves, the scientists said, now that we're able to clone human beings, one of us needs to go talk to God and explain to him we don't need him anymore. And so one of them was sent trundling off to go meet with God, and he says to God, God, we have figured out cloning and all kinds of other marvelous advances. It's pretty clear that the human race has now evolved to the point where we no longer have any need of you. And God was very patient and kind, and he said in response, okay, but just to make sure that you can handle things on your own, let's just conduct a little test. I was thinking maybe we might start at creation. You know, back at that point where, as the book of Genesis says, I created man from the dust of the earth. Sure thing, the scientist says, and he bends over and scoops up a handful of dirt and is about to turn and go to the laboratory when God says, hey, get your own dirt. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. Scientists are, are almost internationally unified today on the proposition that the universe as we know it began with a great big bang. Somehow, long ago, an infinitesimally small particle of matter or of energy, perhaps the size of a dust mote, of a little piece of dirt suddenly went bang, giving forth the chain reaction of circumstances and motion that resulted in the universe as we now know it. But who created that original speck of dirt. The Bible claims that an uncreated creator did that. A, a first cause, a prime mover did that. And for reasons of his own, in the midst of the void of reality, he said, let there be light, and bang. There was light and life and love and laughter that followed after. There are also those artists and chemists and biologists who argue for the existence of God because they see in the complexity of the cosmos and indeed right down to the smallest cell and element of life, they see a complexity and a genius that is simply unexplainable on its own. A book I highly commend to you is written uh, recently by Patrick Glynn, a Harvard and Cambridge uh, graduate called God the Evidence, and in this he makes this profound and repeated uh, articulate case for the extraordinary design of, of, of life as we know it. 
inexplicable by any mathematical terms as a result of sheer, sheer randomness and chance. He's, he, he argues that the, that the mere molecular components which make up DNA, for example, the idea that these things simply came together by accident and random combination is like saying that if you put all of the parts of a car in a big crate and you shook the crate a trillion times, one day you'd open it up and find there a fully assembled Lexus. No way, he says, no way. There is behind the creation a great designer, a great designer at the root of it all. Some psychologists and theologians offer another reason for confidence, that there is a God. They observe that every human being has within them this intrinsic sense of right and wrong, this internal conscience, if you will. Anthropologists uh, carry this idea one step further by observing that in every culture across history, there, there seems to arise a sensibility of the rightness and the wrongness of things that is somehow linked in people's minds to a reality that is even larger than themselves, a reality that they respond to through religious ritual. The scriptures say God has set eternity in their heart his image, his likeness, his moral sensibility, he has implanted in the human species. And the very fact of individual conscience and the reality of corporate religion, some say, points to the existence of a transcendent ethicist, a supremely moral being who endows humanity with a sense of the appropriate boundaries of behavior, whether we respect those boundaries or not. We know. Somehow deeply we know. Now I don't know whether any of these particular evidences for God strikes you as compelling. I don't know if the idea of a God as a prime mover or as a first cause or as a great designer or as a transcendent ethicist uh, spurs you to deeper thinking or belief in these matters, uh, I do know that it's fascinating that those of us who, who, who are Christians are, are not people in the main who check our brains at the door when we come to church. And yet I think what it is important for us to truly recognize is that while the Bible repeatedly touches on each of these particular uh, aspects of God or evidences of God's character and of God's behavior in the universe, the Bible does not hammer on any one of them as all-sufficient proof of God's existence. It's almost as if the writers of Scripture were trying to say or to acknowledge tacitly that no empirical proof is going to be sufficient to convince somebody who's made up their mind they'd prefer not to have a God to have an ultimate accountability. And similarly, that no empirical proof is going to dissuade somebody who's decided that they've encountered such a God. Oxford historian C.S. Lewis understood this, one of the most brilliant minds of the last 100 years. Uh, Lewis observes, when I was an atheist, my intellect sometimes told me I might be wrong. Those Christians, those theists might be right. 
And now that I'm a Christian, he says, sometimes my intellect pushes me the other direction, towards disbelief. The problem with looking at the physical or the psychological world for proofs of God's existence or of God's non-existence is that invariably it is not so much the mind but the heart that determines our orientation in life and our ultimate priorities, our most significant realities of life are shaped by something deep within us that is beyond the mere intellect. We don't believe in love, for example, or forgiveness, or God because we have or ever can prove them absolutely empirically, but because something in our practical experience tells us these things are real and they are powerful and they are at the center of life. At some point, belief in them seems actually more reasonable than belief in almost anything else. And so we choose to commit ourselves to living from that perspective. Even when our mood sometimes swings in the other direction and we think it'll have nothing to do with love and nothing to do with forgiveness, we find ourselves drawn back to these prime realities. Listen carefully to this. The intellect alone will not lead you to God. It won't. It may support the belief. It may tend toward the belief. But the intellect alone will not lead you into the kind of transforming encounter with God that believers through the centuries have claimed. Many, many geniuses throughout history, from Galileo to the head of the Human Genome Project in our time, have been Believers in God. But we who are Christians hold this conviction not primarily because we have ruled out all possible doubt, but because we have encountered in the world around us and in the world within us a presence which keeps expressing himself to us. Moses could, I believe, have stared into that burning bush all day long. He could have stared into that bush and never found out anything very useful about God. He could have spent his whole life trying to infer from nature, from the evidences that the psalmist speaks of all, of how the heavens are always declaring the glory of God. Read Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4 today, and you'll be reminded of that claim. Moses could have done that. He could have have thought a lot about what the cosmos was saying. He might have gone to all kinds of seminars and it would have been an utter waste of his time because if there really is a God, if there truly is a God who created and sustains the cosmos that we can see, just the part of it we can see, and I believe with all my soul there is such a God, but if there is, then we have as much chance of understanding him, of embracing him with our little minds as an insect has of using his simple neurons to grasp the nature of the oxidation process by which a fire burns. We may experience it, but we can never truly encompass it. The Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that God is first and foremost inscrutable. 
He can't be known by our reaching out to take hold of him any more than we can, I suppose, reach out and take hold of fire. As the heavens are higher than the earth, says the prophet Isaiah, so are my ways, speaking for God, my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And yet here, I think, is where the really good news begins, too. Because, you see, Moses didn't have to stand around just staring at the fire, trying to figure out what God was like, who God really was. The Scriptures say that when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, And he said, here I am. This is an immensely important insight for all of us, I think. Because the only way to truly know God, the scriptures teach, is if he chooses to make himself known. And the glory is that God does choose to do that. And an essential difference between Christianity and pretty much any other religion that I know of, is that it posits a God who is known not by our efforts to climb up to him, but by his willingness to come down to us. In other words, God reveals himself to us not by human elevation, but by divine revelation. God cries out, Moses, Moses, Susan, Susan, John, John, here I am. Here I am. Come know me. This is what God has been trying to do. This is what God was trying to do when he lit the fires of creation. When he led the Israelites by the pillar of fire through the darkness of the wilderness, when he spoke through the fiery words of the prophets, God was saying, here I am. Come know me. God was trying to say, here I am when he came in the person of Jesus Christ supremely to blaze a path through life that we could follow after him. Or when he burned in the hearts of those who met him along the Emmaus Road. Or when he came like the tongues of fire at Pentecost. All of those times when you suddenly felt seared in a moment of wrongdoing or strangely warmed in a moment of need or set ablaze in a moment of inspiration. That was the otherwise inscrutable God saying to you, here I am. Come know me. That was God trying to reveal himself to our little insect brains, trying to tell us as much about himself as our minds can embrace for this time. It's only natural and appropriate to ask the question, is there a God? But the more important question I want to suggest is what does the God who some say has revealed himself to us, seem to be like. Those of us who have met 
this presence that I've been talking about, find him to be like the God that Moses met in this way. We find that God is personal. God is not some abstract principle like we hear about in philosophy. He is not like some impersonal and distant kind of force like we hear about in Star Wars. God is a personal being who calls out to us by name, who knows our stories, who knows when we rise and and, and when we sit down and who is aware of the very number of the hairs upon our head or the lack thereof, he's the God we meet in Jesus who spots the individual in the crowd and says, Zacchaeus, come have lunch with me. Who reached out for me, woman? Why have you touched me? God is also holy, we find which is to say that this God who is personal is also utterly beyond and above us. As Harry Emerson Fosdick once said, he is not like a cosmic bellboy for whom we can just press a button to get things. He is not this, this, this butler God that sometimes people speak of God as being. God does not exist for our pleasure at all. We exist actually for God's pleasure for his purposes. Nor is the God we believe in like the one that Deepak Chopra or perhaps the Hindu religion posits who is filling up every single rock and shrub and vain individual and making them divine in themselves. The God who has revealed his presence to me and to many of us here is so supremely pure, so ultimately transcendent, so supreme that when we encounter him in worship, when we really feel his presence in this place, we are sorely tempted to take off our shoes, sensing that we are on holy ground. We want to fall on our knees before him. We want to raise our arms before him in abject worship that he is God and we are not. He is the Holy One. And we are lost in the glorious wonder that someone so magnificent wants us near. If you have met this holiness, then you know that perhaps the most amazing thing about him all is that God is compassionate. God is involved in human life compassionately. He is not some divine watchmaker who sort of fashioned the whole world and wound it up and left the world on the table and left the room forever. God is is intimately involved with his creation from a compassionate heart. He is the God who, as he says to Moses, "I, I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to relieve them. I have come down to deliver them. You know, this is the reality that I personally met one night long ago when I was just 18 years old. I'm going to be 60 years old next Sunday. Blows my mind. But the effect of the God who met me one night when I was 18 years old 
and so utterly lost and so confused and so angry and so in need of someone to reach in and massage my heart back to life and give me a vision and a direction that things could be new again. I will never forget the touch of that God who came to me as the compassionate deliverer. And some others of you can tell a similar story, or maybe not a similar story, but a story of how God met you in some profound moment of need, some time of bondage, some struggle, some place where you were caught in the thicket and the good shepherd came and freed you and set you on a new path. The scriptures say that God is not off beyond the veil of the cosmos someplace. He actually came down in history to deliver humanity. He showed himself willing to not only come down, but to climb up on a cross and stretch out his arms and suffer and die for the sins of humanity to express his total love and commitment to humanity and to show us also that amidst the pain and the brokenness of this world, he is with us. He is feeling it with us. And then he broke out of the grave on Easter morning, the scriptures say, to show us that sin and death do not have the last word over any of us if we put our trust in him. So why does God do this? Why does God do this? Because God loves you. You, he loves you. Each and every single one of you. Not because of your merits, but because you are his. Maybe it's not so much your friends or family who have questions about God. Maybe it's you. Perhaps you find it even hard to listen to what I've been saying here today because you've never really met this God that I seem to be rambling on about. You feel like maybe you know him only slightly or by hearsay. And if that's the case for you, let me suggest one last insight from this morning's text that may be helpful. It appears to me that Moses did two things here that helped him to know this inscrutable, personal, holy, compassionate God in an ever-increasing way. First, he turned aside to see him. He made a point of altering his life's direction and rhythm to focus on understanding more of this God that was calling to him. And the very fact that you've come here today, that you're listening to this message today, is some suggestion that you have also taken something of that step. You've shown yourself willing to turn aside from where all of the sheep are going on this particular morning and to ask the question, what do I make of God? What do I make of this God? 
And yet the most important question I want to suggest, the the most critical question of all, the one whose answer changed Moses' faith from an intellectual proposition, from a sense of possibility in God's existence into an absolutely life-altering reality for him is not the one that, that we ask of God, but rather the one that God asks of us. You see, sometimes we talk about God as if he was over there in the next room waiting for us to consider his merits, when the reality is he is here already in the room with us, and he is sitting on the throne in this room, and he is asking the most burning question of all to us, why should I believe in you? He's asking, why should I reveal myself more to you? Will you go forth and speak to Pharaoh or the powers of our time on my behalf? Will you care for the people around you that I care for? Will you be Christ's body in the world for me? We so often say, give me more reason to believe, then I'll obey you more, but God says, obey me more, and then I'll give you more reasons to believe. And so if you've heard nothing else that I've said today, please hear this. The first step of faith lies in asking, not so much, does God exist, but what kind of God does exist? And the second step of faith is even more important still. Ask, what would you have me do for you, God? Because if you are really open to hearing, God is going to answer that prayer. And I believe that as you and I put his answer into practice, like Moses before us, we will come to know him in more blazing kinds of ways, which is why the most crucial question is, what will God make of us? Please pray with me. Lord, there are some of us here this very day who want and need to know you in a much deeper way. We give you thanks that you have not left us to simply try and figure this out by the strength of our own intellect alone. We thank you for that intellect, God. Oh, we praise you for that capacity to reason and explore and discover. But we thank you that you have also revealed yourself as the personal, holy, and compassionate God you are. If we have never done more than regard you with mere intellectual curiosity, then we want today to be a new beginning. Please come into our lives right now as never before And by the fire of your Holy Spirit, 
burn away every failure, vice, or doubt that may have separated us from you. Then send us forward into this new day, we pray, to be your witnesses in this world. For we offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.